Backseat's musical podcast is brought to you by Canna Provisions. Canna Provisions is an adult-use cannabis dispensary with the largest selection of cannabis products in western Massachusetts with locations both in Holyoke and in Lee. They offer a warm, unique shopping experience with guides rather than bud tenders. In fact, they're not just a dispensary. They're a destination. Visit Canna Provisions today at cannaprovisions.com. Cannaprovisions.com. Adults 21, please, and please consume responsibly. And now, Backseat's musical podcast. Rexy's musical podcast. In 1979, ahead of the Bee Gees, Donna Summer, and the freaking Village People, the number one song in America was not another disco single. The number one song in America was a rock song that was recorded in a single take. I couldn't even get through the introduction of this podcast in a single take. Nevertheless, this was a song that would become the fastest-selling single to reach gold for Capitol Records in 15 years, back when the Beatles released I Want to Hold Your Hand in 1964. This was a song that was recorded by a band that would go on to receive two Grammy nominations, one for Best Rock Performance and one for the Best New Artist. Now, they lost both those awards that night, The Best Rock Performance Grammy went to the Eagles for Heartache Tonight, and the Grammy for Best New Artist went to Ricky Lee Jones. And yet only My Sharona, by the knack, was the number one song in the country. It was a rock song in the age of disco, at the beginning of New Wave. It would become one of the most easily identifiable songs of all time, with one of the most easily identifiable bass lines played by my guest today, Prescott Niles. The Knack story is an interesting one. A story of rapid success, huge expectations, and a slow decline that eventually led to the band breaking up in 1982. There have been a few reunions along the way, but in 2006, original drummer Bruce Gary died of lymphoma at the age of 55, and in 2010, guitarist and lead singer Doug Figer died of cancer at the age of 57. But Prescott Niles has continued to play. In fact, he's been a member of Missing Persons with Dale Bazio for the last 11 years. And this month, As part of Record Store Day on April 23rd, the Knack will be unveiling a previously unreleased live album called Live from the House of Blues in Hollywood, with a limited edition version being released on baby blue vinyl. Prescott Niles is a guy who has not only had a great career in music, he's got loads of incredible stories culled from the last 40-plus years. In other words, you're in for a real treat. My guest today, Prescott Niles from the Knack on Baxi's Musical Podcast. How you doing, Michael? I'm great. How are you? I'm good, man. Nice to see you. You know, I'm playing with a Bostonian. Yeah. As you know, I'm playing with Missing Persons. You've been playing with them for and, for years now, right? Yeah. Doug passed away in 2010, and I played with a few other people, but I like Dale. I've met her before. So how has that been? That's, I mean, that's a band that's been around for a long time. I know Terry no longer plays with them, but it's still a great band. Well, the closest I ever got to Terry Bozio was when he recorded our album. Do you know that? No. Uh, we did yeah, I didn't know that we did our album called Zoom, which is our fourth album. And Bruce uh, had issues with the band. And we, we looked around and Doug met Terry. And Terry, believe it or not, wanted to play with us, which was, you wouldn't think as good as fusion drummers he is. But he, want, he wanted to play with us. And uh, we got together. We rehearsed. We cut uh, most of the songs for the Zoom album, plus a few extra uh, cover songs that came out on a Rhino Greatest Hits album. So he recorded 20 songs with us. It's got to be kind of nice, though, to be on a stage with a guy that doesn't have a 50-piece drum set. Well, Terry brought his small kit. It was like 15 pieces. <laughs> so uh, he, for, he graced us, so to speak. For the space saving, right? Yeah, it was, Terry enjoyed himself. And, and honestly, if there's, the one thing I don't have, I wish if any of your listeners out there happened to have, uh, we didn't get to Boston in our tour because Rhino didn't know how to promote the new album. But if I, I, I don't have any video or any audio of us playing with Terry, which is unbelievable. Really? That, yes. That is so unbelievable. If anybody out there, uh, there'll be a, I will pay a bounty if anybody finds it. <laughs> I got to show you something. I'm sure you'll see this all the time whenever you get an interview with somebody. This is my version of Get the Knack. And as you can see, I've played the living shit out of this album <laughs> since 1979. So Really? That's wonderful. Yeah. And I mean, it, honestly. But it's, you know, you know all the tape <laughs> holding it together. It's. It's uh, it's it's seen its road road weariness. That's for damn sure. 
Well, what I have to give you is giving you a Japanese get the knack. How's that? That would be terrific. But that is, and that is one of those, those records. So I'm, I'm of the age where, so 1979, I would have been just starting high school. And, and Uh I remember we had, we had school dances every, every Friday night and it was always the same songs, but whenever my Sharona would come out, that place would erupt. It's like the timing of that first record and of my Sharona, it it just, you could not have scripted it better for that song to come out and explode the way it does. I don't, I don't think like young kids today can point to a song that had that immediate impact. It really is. It's like a remarkable history of, of just one song. Well, it's uh, just one song and the album, of course, but I, I, in retrospect, you know, we were, I saw a documentary a little while ago about disco and they gave us credit for killing disco, the knack, you know? And, and the thing was that song, you know, disco is all about dancing and Sharona happened to be not by choice. It's a great dance song. And I think that made the transition to the, uh, maybe the new wave audience and different, different bunch of people that dug listening to rock. It made a kind of, kind of cool transition. I think in retrospect, I, I figured that out, you know, people still dance to it. You know, I think that's absolutely true. I think that's, that's what makes that song so special is people were really dying for guitar music to come back and for guitar music to make you want to dance. And 1979, there wasn't a whole lot of that just yet. It's like you guys just, you know, unlock the door and then everybody came in and followed you. Well, yeah, that's true. Blondie was actually when we did our first album, Blondie was in the studio as well with Mike Chapman. Right. Mike, we were lucky enough to have Mike produce us and uh, we benefited greatly from his. He saw us live and he said, you know, I don't want to produce you. I just want to capture what you guys do live and get it on record. And I give him a lot of credit for that. You know, I, I want to ask you about uh, Mike Chapman because it's actually I think it's a really fascinating story. I mean, you, you guys are being courted by nearly every record company in America. You probably could have been produced by any producer in the world at that point, considering all the interest there was in this band. Here you are being produced by a guy who was primarily known as a, a songwriter. And he did a marvelous job with both you and and Blondie. And uh, Pat Benatar. Right. right. Among the, Nick Yolder and my goodness. Well, I lived in England from 73 to 75, and I was part of the glam period, you know? Yep. And, you know, listening, I had no idea that half of those or three quarters of all those pop songs for the suite, for, you know, Susie Quattro, for Slade, were all written by Mike and Nikki Chen, which is odd <laughs> because, you know, I, I just, it was there. But we started playing live uh, in terms of record labels. Uh, early on, Capital, uh, somebody named Bruce Ravid, was one of the early people that came down to see us. He just loved the band and gradually he'd bring down the people I worked in the mail room, the secretaries, the other people in the building. So what really started just as an initial interest by Bruce, it kind of grew. Capital, I think one of the reasons we went with Capital is because everybody kind of knew the band. Polygram offered us a million. Some mm. other record companies offer us a lot of money, but as you know, when you take a lot of money, you owe a lot of money. Right. And we, we didn't, you know, because of the confidence in the band and, and as Mike as well, we didn't need a lot of money capital. I mean, I think it was a hundred thousand, but basically we, because we did the album for 17,000, you know, we hardly, you know, we didn't know, owe anything literally. And, you know, there's a story, you know, you know, people rewrite history, especially people didn't maybe like our success having so quick, you know, they said capital found us, groomed us to be the Beatles you know, paid for our promotions, but, you know, uh, we did, you know, hundreds of shows in LA, two sets a night and basically making no money. So we were not handpicked to be the Beatles nor anybody else that hit later, I think, because of our success, you know, I was listening to another interview that you had done and you, you talked about being in England and then making the trip to Los Angeles. You started off in New York, but you, you met Bruce, you got this band together and there was a conversation I heard where we discuss the chemistry of these four musicians, you know, Doug and, and, yes. and, and Burton. And, and I hear that a lot with other musicians, that chemistry, it either happens or it develops when new guys come in. But with you guys, it was immediate. It's like you, you are playing with these three other guys and all of a sudden you're starting thinking, hey, this could actually work. What was it about the knack that said to you, 
All right, something pretty special is about to happen here. Uh, well, if you read, if you read, I guess that interview or whatever it was, uh, Bruce and I had played together on different occasions, but it didn't last very long. Uh, one time we played, he was going to come back. I, I came back from England with uh, uh, Jeffrey Mitchell, whose group I was playing in. We auditioned drummers. We wanted Bruce to come back, but he ended up going back to England to play with Jack Bruce. And then I stayed in England. He came back to America. Then I got, uh, he wanted me to come back and join the band he was in. I came back, played with him. Then he went back to England to play with Mick Taylor's band. I mean, Bruce had the most professional cred out of any of us, by the way. Uh, you know, I mean, we had some flirtation with it, but, and, and then and Bruce called me in 78 and said, hey, I'm doing this thing. You know, we want kind of look like Paul McCartney. You can play like M Whistle. And I just raised my hand, of course, right? <laughs> of course, <laughs> I didn't solo very much, but still. And when I met the guys, first time we played together, I mean, mainly because of Bruce as well, but playing with Burton, who I found out is one of the great guitar players and to this day is unsung or not underappreciated for sure. And Doug is a great front man and songwriter and lyricist as well. So it all, when I closed my eyes and I never felt that buzz and I had played with great musicians or the, for some reason, the chemistry was just right. The energy was right. And I think it was our time, you know, when you got a, a guy like Doug, who's just a great songwriter. And, you know, for anyone who thinks that the knack is a one hit wonder, I defy you to listen to the rest of the record to find out how false that is, because there are just so many great songs on uh, on those first couple of records. When you when you've got a guy in the band like that and you're just starting out and you're hearing what he's coming up with. There's got to be an excitement about the material you're working with. And it sounded like you guys worked very, very quickly together. Like there wasn't a whole lot of overthinking anything. It just, you know, these songs came together quickly. They recorded quickly and they were out quickly. Well, one thing uh, regarding that, when we started playing some of the songs in the first set, there's a, there's a live thing of us at the whiskey. Somebody shot on black and white. And, you know, there's a few, a number of the songs that we started with didn't end up with us. Songs like Sharona, Frustrated, uh, Good Girls Done was actually a demo, it was on a demo that Doug Burton and Bruce did that was rejected by Capitol three years earlier. <laughs> Thought I'd give you a caveat on that. Uh, and Let Me Out was also written later, as was Selfish. You know, those, some of those songs were influenced by Doug's obsession with Sharona. Yeah. Well, we, we all have girls we're obsessed with. And, and I think Doug figured out a way to make it relatable by every young man in America. You know, but it wasn't deliberate. It just, it just happened. So those songs came when the band started playing and we got our own sound. And that had a lot to do with the progression from, you know, just really good players into molding into, you know, and playing a bunch of shows as well really solidified the endurance, the improvisational nature of the band, the ability to really perform. And none of us, you know, really knew that. Let's say un, unhinged performances without holding anything back. And that had a lot to do with, you know, every all of us. There was also a couple of things along the way that helped you out. I mean, your first shows together, were, I think were 1978, the summer of 78. And then all of a sudden you're playing in clubs and suddenly... Bruce Springsteen and Tom Petty are joining you on stage. I mean, those are a couple of validating moments for any that for, it would be that way for any band, but that had to be very important for, for guys like you. Ray Manzarek would be well, another one too. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up because when I do interviews, a lot of people don't understand that one of the, the being a, 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 a great musical band and performance wise, I had no idea that it was Eddie Money first who jammed with us at Starwood and we did two tickets to Paradise with him. And then Petty jammed with us. We did Moan and Not Fade Away. Springsteen happened to be at the Troubadour and I think Bruce had met him maybe or somebody in his you know group or something. And then he jammed with us in the same song. Stephen Stills also jammed with us and wanted to produce us. And it wasn't right, but we had fun playing with him. Yeah. And also, and also Ray Manzarek uh, knew Bruce Gary very well. And to do three door songs with him was just amazing. So the credibility we got as musicians is overlooked. And they were like icons back then. They were also forming their careers, you know, right. all of us were. And it was just really, a, I'm grateful they did, but it was almost, it was a camaraderie thing. Like, you know, like they did in England too, back in the day when groups would be friendly with each other. And, you know, they jam with each other and there wasn't that kind of cutthroat competition, I guess, you know, I read another interview you did where you said that 
many of the songs on that first record and some of the ones that were held over to the second record were mostly done in a single take. That seems remarkable to me. Yes. Well, I will contribute. Uh, one thing is the one hit wonder thing I get. And I think after the second album, that became more prominent. And I'll explain later why. Uh, we were lucky. Now, first of all, we had no expectations. Again, Mike had come, you know, there were other producers we had thought of. And I think it, somehow Mike's name came up and we invited him down. He just said, look, guys, you're such a great band. I really want to record you live. So we went in the studio. Mike made a decision. Now, Mike is a great producer, but being a great producer means either you don't produce, overproduce, and let it happen, or you add production. It depends on the band you're with, right? Right. And Mike really just wanted to get us live. And I give him credit for that. Now, he was the only one who said Toronto was a number one, which is very interesting considering Capital did not release Sharona. I don't know if you know this. We were in Europe at the time, and Capital gave the album to radio. Uh, Sharona became the most requested song in America in two days, you know? <laughs> and as a result of that, Capital, and their way, well, here's what it was. First of all, most new bands are broken. Uh, usually they release one single that gets people interested, and then they release the hit. It's kind of a formula. With us, it was completely backwards. We gave the album the radio and their choice, Sharona, was the song. So Capitol had to do a rush release of um, the single of My Sharona. And the good thing about it is more people heard the album. As you mentioned, there's a lot of great songs. And the other way, a lot of people may have just heard the single and now listened to the album. This way, they had to listen to the album. And as a result, people appreciated the songs and the song craft. And also, Sharona was the first song in the second side. I know it wasn't the first song and the first side. <laughs> and that had to do with the fact that, you know, somebody asked me, well, did you know it was going to be a hit? I said, no. I mean, you know, we got to understand none of us had a hit record. We had been in groups that were good and played with great people. But we had no expectations. We had great hope. But, you know, you can't plan this. Capital didn't plan it. You know, they had a formula, maybe. And so it was really exciting. And none of it was pre-hype. The pre-hype was more from press. It had nothing to do, you know, nobody picked Sharona to be a hit. And when it became a hit, then everybody started catching up. That first album, I mean, because we were a really good band, we weren't one-hit wonders. As you meant, we were one-take wonders. And a lot of those songs in there were just like, okay, guys, let's go. <laughs> and we run the song through. Mike goes, okay, Sharona, we recorded on the second day. And Mike would usually, you know, set up the, you know, they kind of knew what we, you know, first day is getting sound. So Mike came in and go, okay, guys, let's run it down. So we played Sharona beginning to end. And Mike goes, okay, let's do another song. And we go, what do you mean? He goes, now nah, we got it. <laughs> so we went in there and we did our run through. See, the thing is, not only because we played the song live, because the musicianship was so technically brilliant that it wasn't about that. It was just getting the spirit of the song. So Mike's whole idea was when we heard it, we go, yeah, it's pretty damn good. We want to do it again. Nope. So Mike knew the difference between something that was so spontaneous that he didn't have to worry about. There was no, you know, the only punching was maybe Burton had a flub or two. Maybe Doug wanted to fix a couple of pitching issues. It was a, it was a completely live track. But that's the amazing part about it. I mean, you know, here you have a song that that was like so purely recorded right off the bat and it winds up being the fastest selling single yep. to gold that Capitol had had since the Beatles. That never happens. It, it certainly doesn't happen today. And I, I can't recall when it's happened since. Maybe Millie Vanelli. No, I'm <laughs> kidding. <laughs> yeah, no, but they didn't, take this another one, they didn't take this one away from you. Well, the weird thing is, like I said, there was no real pre-hype. Radio wasn't paid money. They were just giving the album. Right. And, and you know, people, are re, you know, critics when they decided to turn on us, literally, you know, our success was too quick. We didn't pay our dues, even though all of us paid our dues from all the bands we play with. None of us had money. We were not household names either. So it wasn't any of that. But, and, and I think that that's maybe overlooked. We cut our album for 17,000. We mixed it, you know, we mastered it. Now Blondie was recording down the hall and Blondie, we're great band, and I love to say hello to Deborah Harrow every day. She was definitely uh, pleasing on the eyes. Yes. And she was wonderful, and they were great guys. 
but they worked at a different pace and maybe there was more production involved. But we were in and out of there like in no time. Unfortunately, when record companies found out we recorded the album for so cheap, they started telling their bands, hey, you didn't act did it for 17. Why don't you guys do it? And then they started to go, screw the knack. <laughs> no, because, <laughs> you know, it was weird. I, I didn't even understand why that was happening, you know. And maybe there was a bit of jealousy, but we paid our dues. And, and again, you know, I'm so happy that people got to know the album. So the one hit thing is understandable. And by the way, Good Girls Don't was, you know, borderline top 10. Yeah. And it was a, it was a great song. And even the, the follow-up album, but the, but the Little Girls Understand was still a gold album. It just, I've it, got them on my wall. Yeah, <laughs> of course you do. I mean, I'm look, I'm look. Yeah, but that that was never, you know, that was never our goal. I mean, yeah, after the first album, sure. But but the big problem was, first of all, Capital didn't want us to do a. There was no rush to do a second album. I figured, at least frustrated, maybe selfish with editing, would have been a really good single. Some people maybe liked other songs we did. I think that was, we, we didn't take advantage of the songs on the album. And Mike even attested to that, you know, that, you know, he came to a listening party a few years ago, a friend's house, and we listened to vinyls and we listened to that album together. And Mike said, that should have been a single. That should have been a single. So for some reason, I guess because Good Girls Don't was edited because of a couple of lines that were not, you know, <laughs> worthy of, uh, you know, right. censorship. And, and I, that was weird in a way. He, he didn't want to cut lyrics, even though Sharona had its own brand of it, you know? Right. And that's very important. We should have had another single. If we're doing a second album, we needed a single to put out. You cannot underestimate the fact that with a song like Sharona, you better have a song better. If not better, it be, better be damn as good. And I think that was a critical mistake by Capitol and the band. I have my own reservations about it, but I, you know, I didn't, I didn't think it had the commercial appeal. And the lyric, frankly, was a bit, you know, sensual. <laughs> which isn't, which isn't always a bad thing, but I think you're, you're right. I think there, there were a couple of things that went against you. First of all, I think, you know, whenever you have a, either an album or a single that sells that much or sells that well, that quickly, there's always this sense that, <clears throat> you know, you got to duplicate immeasurable success. And even as a member of the band, there's got to be a lot of pressure that you're putting on yourself saying, you know, can mm -hmm. we, can we top that? And in nearly every case of anyone I've ever talked to, it's always like, it's, it, it's an unattainable thing to expect. It, it could just happen. It like, it's really mm -hmm. hard to duplicate that success. Did yeah. Well, the honesty of how it happened the first time was quite remarkable. And again, we easily could have had another single. I don't know if you realize this, but we were nominated for two Grammy Awards. Right. Best song, best song and, and uh, you know, uh, best new artist. Now, to not go to the Grammys and miss up maybe playing at the Grammys. See, there's business things you have to do. Our success was one of those things that happened apart from hype even though we're accused of hype and apart from asking for favors, we created our own niche by not engaging in the business world and kissing ass to be, you know, we could have played on that show and done other, other rock shows at the time. I think we were besieged by so many offers like Mork and Mindy, for instance, like Fridays, mm -hmm. uh, like Kirshner. I think the paralysis of doing the right thing and the, people calling us upstarts or ah they're you know what the hell these guys like you know i think it started a backlash if we had done the grammys for instance you see the thing is we could have wrote that album a few more months we had not done any american television we did television in you know australia new zealand you know italy france uh, london so there's no if we rode sharona for a while and even had a video out and we by the way we just missed mtv so if we had we if we had a thing on mtv certainly would be a different conversation today. Right. But so not only did it slow the momentum of the band, it gave more criticism than needed. And again, you cannot overestimate. Like I said, when you have a single like that, you just can't put out another single and assume it's not a it was it, the only thing about the two songs is that they're in the key of G. I mean, I've read critiques going, well, it, it's a sound like Sharona. It's not. 
it's it's a riff, but the, but the bridge the, the bridge section is kind of like Led Zeppelin. It's got a feel to it. But more than that, it it was a really good song, but it wasn't an A hit. You know, it's it's funny to me because you know, I, I have read and have heard this you know time and time again this comparison between the Knack and the Beatles, and I yeah. you know to me I, I guess I, I can understand in 1979 the desire to find the next Beatles from Capitol's perspective, but the reality is I think you guys had more in common with a band like Cheap Trick than you had with the Beatles. Yeah. Yeah, we sounded more like the Who and the Kinks in some respects. Yeah. You know, Bruce's drumming is not Ringo. We only had one lead singer. I mean, I'm just, you know, if, if we had a Beatles thing to it, then yeah. But the way we played, Doug was a front man. He, you know, he was he had more of an antagonist attitude. Very much like Johnny Rotten is a song we did called Art War. Doug had a great punk routine, you know. He wasn't trying to, maybe there's some gestures of Lennon. I played... You know, I was not Paul. I, I love Paul and if we were appropriately, I'd maybe model his bass playing. But I kind of danced around a lot. And Burden's guitar playing was not George Harrison. And and again, my Sharona, unfortunately, when the album came out, people heard the whole solo. And that's a brilliant solo. And again, one of the greatest solos for pop bands ever. And because of the single cut the solo in half, I think a lot of people never heard, even though the, the half of the solo is great. But I, I think the musicianship and and another thing going back to the thing about cutting the song live, the song maybe starts in one tempo. We go to the bridge, you know, we push it a bit. You see, that's why playing to a click track has limitation. You know, a producer may have gone, let's do it to a click track. No, because it was natural speed ups. This, you know, coming into the solo, it sped up a little. The first solo, by the way. And then after that, we go into the long solo and there are sections we really push it. So we may have pushed it four beats ahead. By the time we came back and stopped it and started the song again, it was exactly the same tempo as we started it. Bruce was such a great drummer. And a lot of producers would have just cut and paste, you know? They would say, let's get, let's take the first intro and make it the end out. You go, no, no, we don't have to. But you know, I mean, thank goodness you had a producer that could that could tell the difference. It didn't force that on you because I mean you could have taken away a whole texture away from the band by insisting upon certain things like a click track like strings or you know whatever it would have been i mean well the second album there were strings and yeah but, how can love hurt so much right but, but and that you, made me uh, but you know what that, i mean i mean you know i, I think it takes a, a special ear to say this doesn't need this all it really needs is for us to get that that raw sound of this song or yeah, that song it was wonderful even i think doug said in an interview once well mike just moved dials and something yeah i but 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 to be a really great producer, it's know what to do and what not to do. If, if something sounds great, why are you going to screw with it? Now, when we did the second album, Mike uh, wasn't fully there. There were some business issues and some marital uh, discrepancies. How's that for a word for it? Um, <laughs> maybe it had to do with Tanya Tucker coming to the studio. I don't know. But um, And I think if Mike put his foot down and said, no, this ain't coming out. I, I think that would have maybe got people's attention. Mike had other business things going on. We actually recorded the album pretty quick and it was mixed in England. I wasn't there and either was Burton. There was a difference in the album. We were really close. Now when Doug got Sharona, you know, she'd come to the studio a lot and which was great. He'd sing to her, you know, and great, great, great. But when the album was, uh, the engineer we had had to go back to England, his wife was uh, having a baby. So Doug, Mike, and uh, the engineer went back to England to mix the album. And I never asked Mike if he wanted, if, hey, Mike, do you think this should be a single? Because Mike was not as engaged as he was. And that was the difference to begin with. And we, me and Bert and Bruce didn't like the mix. It didn't sound as sharp. It didn't sound as powerful as the first album. So we had our own issues, actually. But it came back and it was almost like, we got it, let's go, let's go, you know? And in retrospect, I think even though the performances are good and you wouldn't know the difference and the songs were good, but, I, you know, it wasn't like we had two albums worth of material. Some of those songs we did have in the past and some we didn't. But again, with, without a number one or number 10 song that's going to grab people, I think that was kind of like, you know, digging our own proverbial grave. Do you say that that's maybe one of the reasons why things started to fracture? 
because of absolutely exactly that it wasn't the pressure of playing or writing it was it was the the forced era of not taking we could have taken five months that album was still it came out in june right mm-hmm. it was number one all summer so we don't have to put out an album five months later and we if we did we should be here to promote it so that you know and not even in retrospect i kept journals and i I kept going, why, 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 you know, I mean, so things like that are important. It's not that we, we lousy or anything, but we've made bad choices. And it seemed like nobody understood that. And the manager, we have a manager to guide you. And maybe he should have put his foot down. Maybe once the band did break up, it, it's, it's not like you didn't stay busy. You stayed very, very busy, whether it was missing persons or you know, Gary Myrick no, or any when, of the other things that you had well, done. No, the group, the group broke up. I joined Josie Cotton. I was in Valley Girl. That was my debut, man. <laughs> and I and I did a very cool album with her. It's called From the Hip. And it's a great album. You know, she had some play in MTV, by the way. And I liked playing with her. And I liked, you know, it's really funny. When I joined her band, I did ATV shows versus none for the knack in America. So you figure that. <laughs> but she was wonderful. Yeah. And then also Bruce Burton and I put our own group together. We called it The Front, and we had a lead singer who was not a lead singer. He was an actor named Stephen Bauer, who had fame from Scarface and a number of other movies. Right. You know? yeah. He could sing a little bit, but we went this manager who was working with him, and we started rehearsing, and, and you know, it was, we could have had a deal. He wasn't a great singer, but he looked great. You know? So we basically, well, first of all, we broke up first. That, well, the second time was with Steve Bauer. We broke up. And that was it. You know, we, we, the greatest thing we did was to play the forum, you know, a year before that we're playing, you know, the troubadour and then we're playing the forum and sold it out in two hours. You know, the fans in LA were just, it was the best show. And one of the cover songs we did was we love you, which we ended the, the show with the stone song, which was wonderful. And, and, you know, so we kept it together and meeting Britt Eklund afterwards at an after show party is one of my fondest memories. <laughs> Let alone going to Disneyland with her. That's a whole other story. Really? <laughs> but yeah, it's really, I, it was, it was very good. You know, you never know what's going to happen literally. <laughs> and it was, it's wonderful. But anyway, we did break up and um, we, when Lennon met, you know, I even hate to use any of the words assassinated or all of it still hurts. And, and it was just, you know, so we were going over, well, I called Doug and say, you know, look, I know you've got your resentments and attitude. I know we all got our own thing. We, we got to do something about this. So we really rallied together a lot to do with John because there was we all emotionally. We're all in the same on the same. I hate to use the word page. We're in the same pit of despair. I mean, even now, even saying it is bizarre. How did that happen? Uh, and we know how it happened. But uh, so I got together with Doug. We all decided, hey, let's give it one more shot. Or let's give it. Now we did have a three-record deal with Capital, so it wasn't like we had to go get a new record label. So we just we we figured out Jack Douglas was a great producer to begin with because of Aerosmith and other people's work, and because he did work with John Lennon, that had a special mystique to it. And we had no idea that Jack would accept to produce us, you know. But we reached out to him, and Jack said, "Yeah, you're a great band. I want to work with you." And I was like, "What? What a miracle that is." And we started work with Jack. And I got to tell you, sonically, production-wise, where needed is, is apart from Get the Knack, because it was an amazing album, because uh, of the live thing, this is the best recorded, produced album we ever did. But it's if I, in contemporary terms, if it came out today, it sounds as good as anybody else. You know, I mean, I think any time that you get guys back together and you're doing it for the right reasons, I mean, a lot of really good things can happen. I mean, you, you do hear of a lot of, you know, reunions that are, that are not, other than not successful, but you know, that, you know, the, the, it could be just a money grab or it could be just, you know, the doing it for, for other reasons other than just getting back together, restoring old friendships and, and making great music together. But it is kind of nice to hear that even though the, the death of John Lennon, Lennon may be a catalyst to have gotten you together. It was, it was a catalyst because there was a lot of ego and resentment. Yeah. Going time so it was but you still got there and you did get together a couple other times before doug passed away too so you know it did continue on well round trip again whether it was commercially successful or not again they picked the wrong single they picked the country 
ballad. You, you'll hear the album. You should write me and tell me what song you would have released. The songwriting was really good. And the music, and we did songs where one track we sounded like Steely Dan. Not saying we were, but there was some real sophisticated chords. There was a, a song that had a funk thing to it. We were really proud of it. We did a really good tour. And we got, the critics thought we were really good. So mm. we had no commercial success, unfortunately. But the experience of working with Jack and getting his thumbs up, like you guys, you're a great band at least meant a lot to us in some level. Yeah. And after that, we broke up, did some, did some other things in the meantime, did a showcase. Actually, Pat Torpy, when Bruce quit the band, uh, Pat Torpy started playing. Now, Pat Torpy ended up with Mr. Big. Right. Uh, a great band with great musicians. So he, we were just doing showcases. And I said, Pat, you know, go for it, because I knew Billy Sheehan was. Later on, Pat was our drummer for the last four years of the band, by the way. That's why I mentioned it. Right. So, um. We, we were just figuring out what to do. We did it. We did a few demos together. We figured out, you know, Bruce kind of said he was doing other things. So Bert and I and, and Doug started getting together. We did some demos with Val Gray. And then Don was was a good friend of Doug. At, at, you know, he knew him from Detroit. So Don said, look, you guys want to record? I'll, I'll produce you. So we got a deal from Charisma Records and we did Serious Fun. And Serious Fun did have a top 10 FM song. You know, it didn't cross over, but it Rocket of Love. It was pretty cool video as well. But again, it didn't do much, but we did get exposure again. And because Reality Bites had come out after that, we were able to do a tour because Sharon entered the chart again. <laughs> top one. Can you believe that? I Yeah, I believe it. Now, did one thing. Did you know what, what the competing movie was? This is a mouthful. You'll see. <laughs> so before Ben Stiller you know, called us and talked about it. Tarantino wanted to use that song in Pulp Fiction. Unfortunately, the scene they had in mind was the hillbilly rape scene in the pawn shop. And, I, you know, nobody knew that uh, Tarantino would produce a classic forever. But I could not live with the fact that every time somebody hears that song, they might think of that with the Confederate flag and all that. Yeah, no, I, I can I can see the hesitation on that one. That would destroy the song to a lot of people. Thankfully. Uh, we did. I have a on my wall. I actually have a, a, a platinum cassette from Sharona for the soundtrack <laughs> of that. How's that? Not bad. <clears throat> and it's and a CD and a CD. But because of that, um, it, and I loved the way, how they used it. You know, for, in the scene they picked. So <clears throat> that gave us ability to tour America again, <clears throat> which is fantastic. You know, that's great. And and charisma unfortunately fell apart. It lost funding. So the album had a lot of legs on it. I, it was well produced and the musicianship was extraordinary. But, uh, you know, we really didn't have a, a, an AM crossover song. So, you know, but yeah. we were proud of the album. And that's that incarnation, yeah. so to speak. But you're not the only you're not the only band that's the, that had that problem with uh, charisma, too. I mean, there were there were a number that. Oh, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah number yeah. of number of bands that were waiting to be uh, waiting to be broken that charisma yes. at that point in their, in their history, just simply couldn't accommodate. Yeah. So after that, again, that was another kind of breakup period for a while because, you know, Billy was a great, Billy Ward was our drummer. He's from New York. Great, great player, really cool jazz. He could play anything session drummer. So we went through that period of, well, you know, whatever I did my other, th we all did our own things, literally different people, sessions or something. And Burton was very talented. He was writing musicals. And oh, really? trying to get them produced. Yeah, yeah. He 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 had a great mind, and um, for the, you know to write musicals, you really got to understand what they are. Theatrical appeal, and he had a lot of talent. So he was doing his thing. Doug started producing people. I was working with other people. So um, we got back together and started playing around with Bruce again. We played the Viper Room, and Rhino Records really were interested. Now the manager we had was Danny Sugarman. I don't know if you know who Danny was. Yeah. From the doors, you know? Yeah. Uh, managed and wrote books. So Danny said, I want to manage you guys. And he said, I want you to, you know, Doug had uh, done a solo album. He's going to release. And Danny goes, no, you guys should write new songs. So we all, we all got together and started like the first time in years working together, the three of us. And luckily I, I uh, there was a song I had written for, I, I submitted it for that thing you do, the movie. And I and I wrote the song and had Bill Bill Hudson, who was a friend of mine at the time, uh, sing sing on it for me, and we demoed it, 
and they had the soundtrack they had all the songs picked out already and mm -hmm. so that was the song i brought into the knack and i go what do you think and they go yeah so that song ended up in the album zoom and the only reason i'm mentioning it not to brag but um i do have a voice by the way and um <laughs> that song is on is the, the digital single that is off our live album by the way oh no kidding and that's why i referenced it yeah but we got together and we started writing and so that album was was engineered and all produced and terry bozio doug had met him and goes you know hey we bruce left the band and terry was interested believe it or not and came in we cut a bunch of songs with terry and he liked playing with the band and agreed to tour with us and people go he'll never play with you guys he doesn't play rock meaning straight rock some of the cuts on the album are straight rock. Terry was brilliant. I love working with him, by the way. We started touring. Rhino didn't know how to promote the album. But uh, can, I, can I give you one Twilight Zone moment? Of course. Very important. So we, Doug's brother, Jeffrey, was an attorney. I don't know if you know who he was. He had represented some controversial clients. Yes, he did. Okay. So, he, yeah. so often he'd introduce us when we played shows, right? Okay. So we were playing in Detroit. And before we played, he comes up to the dressing room, say hello to everybody, and has some old guy with him, you know. And I thought he was the grandfather or the uncle or something. And I'm, I'm hanging with Burton. Me and Burton always had this, like, sympathetic, like, vibe together. When something wasn't right, we both said, oh, crap, you know. So the guy started in being introduced, and it was Jack Kevorkian, <laughs> Dr. Death. <laughs> so... I, I know people have odd moments in their lives. Right. That was an odd one. Why is Jack Kevorkian in the next dressing room? <laughs> uh, now, I had nothing against the ethics. I, I just felt like this is not rock and roll. <laughs> so Terry shook his hands. Doug shook his hands. I, I was just, I, I, I went in the corner and looked at Bird and I go, we're fucked, you know? <laughs> now, what happened was three days later, Doug started getting sick. And now, of course, he could have gotten the flu anyway. But his voice, first time he really we had to drop keys. His song couldn't sing very well. Terry got bronchitis a week later, and then the tour was over. Oh, wow. Thank you, Jeffrey, <laughs> for Dr. Death in our dressing room. <laughs> I know it's cool. I had to tell you that story, okay? Well, hopefully that's not what, uh, that's not what did you guys in. But it was an odd confluence of things so there you go that's jack of meets the knack that's unbelievable i did want to ask you about the new live album really great idea yeah it's uh, live in the house of blues in uh, in hollywood this is a show yep. from 2001 right. i think yeah tell me about yep. that tell me about that show well we got the new deal we got a new drummer jones now the the, the thing the, i don't know if you ever saw fun house it was the video have you seen it yeah at all? okay so that's the lineup. Now, when we did that show, we were releasing a new record for Smile. Now, it's the first time we played together with the new drummer, Holmes Jones. He was a younger guy who kind of looked like Elvis. If you, that's why if you saw the video of him, he was great. He was a wild man. And he looked like Elvis, old sideburns. He's from the South. He was great. But you don't see that on the live album. But that was the first show we played in a while as the knack, you know? Right. And it was, and listening to it, you know, I didn't know they recorded it, nor did I know, you know, until Tony called me from Smile. We, we've been friends. And he said he found this tape and people want to put it out. And I go, great. Not only that, but a double album vinyl plus a CD and streaming. Yeah. I mean, I was, I couldn't believe it. That's like found gold for me. Because I, I never remembered the show. I knew it's after 9-11. I knew that it was a strange time. Not as strange as COVID, that's for sure. But if we were in New York, it would have been more surrealistic. But at least in LA, it was, you know, people asked me. I said it was an exciting show. It was packed. And people really got into it. So the album has a lot of songs from each of our albums, by the way. I listened to it. And I mean, you guys sound explosive in it. I mean, for, for, exactly. for a band that, that had uh, not played for a while, it sounded like you guys were playing at the top of your game. It sounds terrific. It was exciting. Yeah. yeah. I mean, technically there are issues. It was a board mix rather than audience and board. However, I listened to it the other night again, because I'm a bit critical, but I got into it and I go, damn, that's not bad. Look, and that's solo. Now people ask me, how come we did tequila break on through? 
And why did you do last train to Clarksville, for instance? And we always did covers because we can just learn it and do it. And we all, we knew them all. But um, a lot of times we jam at rehearsals, you know. So one day, Burden, we, we'd school around a Burden. Burden's a great slide player, by the way. And nobody knows even how great he is anyway. But we started fooling around and Burden did, you know, tequila. And then because the chord changes are the same, Doug chimed in with, you know, um, <laughs> you know, break on through. And that's when we started doing the live. And that solo Burton plays, which is a four minute solo, is classic. And Excellent. I listened to it and, and I got goosebumps because I don't remember because we do a lot of shows through the years and I don't hear every solo Burton did or maybe things I did or, or you know, but man, he, he was brilliant that night. So yeah. I, if you're a guitar enthusiast, check it out. But I'm glad it's out. I'm glad, you know, we live again, so to speak. I'm signing, uh, I'm going to see record day. I'm going to go to a couple of places in LA and I'm just grateful that we get a chance to talk and even talk about this stuff. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's awesome. Also like the, uh, the limited edition baby blue vinyl. I mean, I like that kind of stuff. I don't have the, you know, necessarily the means to yeah. to buy all that kind of stuff, but I, but I, but I love the effort of, of well thought out packaging. It's, it's wonderful. Yeah. I think it's great. And that album cover, by the way, uh, you know, that's only the three of us. <clears throat> now, some people ask what happened. Well, we at that time we shot the pictures we shot. That wasn't even for this album cover. That was just a publicity shot. Mm. But because Tony said this is a great picture, we didn't have a drummer at that time. So basically, that picture was what we used. We did have pictures taken with Jones, but that was a great album cover. And by the way, Randy St. Nicholas, who's a dear friend of mine, she shot the first album cover. Now she was an artist, and she was married to a good friend, Nick St. Nicholas from Steppenwolf. That's mm -hmm. when I first met her. And she was an artist, not a photographer. But she shot basically, except for the second album, all our album covers, except for Serious Fun, by the way. And also, I've, I'm asked about the first album. Some people go, did you deliberately do like a Meet the Beatles copy? I go, no. I go, Randy said, stand here and, you know, do different poses. And it was that. I'll tell you what, I wouldn't discount the idea of putting tape all over the first uh, the first cover of the album. Looks like I got all worn out and torn. Well, you're gonna get you. I, I, I'll get you. I tell you what, I'll send you that, and I'll send you the single. That'd be I'll great. I'll send you the 45 of Sharona on the cover. Wow, that sounds that sounds great. Correct me if I'm wrong about this. You also had a chance to to meet and play with George Harrison too. So when I li I lived in England 73 to 75. Uh, one of my good fortunes of meeting somebody was Rose Taylor, who was married to Mick Taylor. Right. And Nick was in the, I was into chess. So was Mick Taylor. But, you know, all I wanted to do was play with him. And you got to understand, I'm like 20, 21. And um, all I was interested in is jamming with people. And I did get a chance to play with Mick once. But he also was ingesting something that would make chess moves take like two hours to make a move. <laughs> and it begins with H. But anyway. Gotcha. When the Rolling Stones say you've got to go because you've got a drug problem, that must really mean yeah. something. Yeah. <laughs> you, but anyway, so um, so we go out dancing a lot, and because it was a private club called Tramps, and the manager of the band that I was in, while I was in England, actually, uh, his father was a famous actor named Stuart Granger. So Jamie knew a lot of the people. We used to get into private clubs. So how I met George Harrison at first was I was dating this girl who was best friends with Derek Taylor's secretary, and Derek Taylor was the Beatles' publicist. And George Harrison. So I met George Harrison first dancing with him. I said, I danced with George because everybody would dance together, you know, right? You sure. go out, I'm dancing with the girl I'm with, she's dancing. And, I, and so I met George and yeah, it's Prescott. Hey, you know, that was it. So cuts in 1986. So I got a call to do the session at Sound City and the uh, producer said, look, you know, um, I'm not going to tell you who it is. I go, I don't care where it is. What's the deal? I didn't, you know, who knows, right? right? Just come down. So I went down there and I went in there and he said, by the way, Prescott, you know, just it's George Harrison. Don't be weird or anything. I go, I'm not weird. I met him. <laughs> you know, I, I wasn't some high school kid, you know. I, and by the way, it, nevertheless, it was still that like, okay, where am I kind of thing, right? <laughs> so I was introduced to George and, and I was kind of a pleasure to meet you. And I go, by the way, I don't know, if, I'm sure you don't remember, but I danced with you in London. And he goes, I said, Kathy, something, you're done to something. He goes, oh yeah, right. You, 
because you you know they were really close. But I said, oh yeah, he says he said, oh yeah, you were the knack because I dig your record. So that broke the ice for me. I wasn't some guy coming in there. Right. So that was great. I felt comfortable, and George was you know was in the control with him. Now Jim Keldon was drumming, and uh, who is a legend to begin with, and I had played with great drummers you know before that. But Jim Keldner was strumming and Lawrence Struber was playing guitar, you know, and his tour ended when McCartney, when McCartney was arrested in Japan, by the way. <laughs> what a way for a tour to end, right? <laughs> no kidding. So George ran this song down and George hadn't really been recording. So this was for Shanghai Surprise, by the way. And the song we did was someplace else. So the thing was, I'm in the studio. I got a chord chart written out for me. And George Harrison usually has some odd chord changes. So I'm looking at the chord chart and, you know, basically I got what I'm doing, but I try to be inventive. I got Jim Keldner on drums. who usually plays very back in the pocket. You know, he's a great drummer and Lawrence playing guitar. So I was praying and go, okay, God, I'm putting you on the line here. Okay. <laughs> I know I've had great success. I'm I'm, I'm crapping in my pants. Okay. Because <laughs> The thing I feared most, I knew I was a great player. I didn't want him to stop the tape because of me. And I've done enough sessions to know where if a drummer screws up, a guitar player, or I may hit wrong notes, they'd stop the tape. So I knew I had to get an A plus on my exam. <laughs> Luckily, I didn't make any screw ups. I played way back in the pocket. I added a couple of lines that I thought were cool and nobody stopped the tape. That was my victory. There you go. Good for and, you. And, I, and people were relate to that, you know, <laughs> not because it was George, but because it was, you know, I wanted to make a good impression. So after we did that, I was, I was there for a second day. I, I still have the a photograph of the uh, invoice when they paid me for the session to prove I didn't dream it up. <laughs> just just saying, right? Yeah, listen, you got, way, you, you got to prove your history. That's right. That's and that was, it wasn't a lot. It was only for $350, but hey, it was the best $350 I ever made. For $350, bucks, though, I probably would have kept the check and just <clears throat> framed it forever. Now, well, I could still have it with Dark Horse <laughs> and the thing on top, right? Exactly. Now, here's the thing. I didn't take any pictures. Oh. It's, you know, I could have had a camera, but I didn't want to, you understand? It was almost yeah. like I, I wanted to. In Lawrence Struber, who I'm friends with, I said, didn't you take any photos? He goes, no. And I'm going, oh, you know, because <laughs> I would have loved to, the photo of it. Well, but it was one of those things where I didn't want to. Does that make sense? Well, yes, because you never want to be a fanboy in front of your heroes. And yeah, it, yeah, yeah. And yeah, I, yeah. I totally get that. And, and there have been times when I really had to fight back that urge too but uh no i totally yeah. get that but i in retrospect i wish i did yeah but there you go that's life but yeah. anyway that's my wonderful george harrison experience that i do tre treasure because i spent a couple of days with him and it was it was real and yeah. it was and as a person he's he's funny as heck anyway and uh he's just one of those people that again sorely missed and i felt great sadness for that as well yeah. of course you know now tell me about the Woodstock story. I want to hear this too. You sure of this? Okay. Yeah, I want to hear it. <laughs> all right. So I used, to, I used to go up. Now, first of all, I used to go to Fillmore all the time. Okay. So I, I Fillmore East, that was my education. That was my college education in music. So I saw everybody play. I, I saw what it was like, you know, to be, I could see Led Zeppelin one night with Iron Butterfly. Albert King opens up <laughs> for, I saw Jimi Hendrix with Sly Stone. Wow. Uh, every group that you know the rascals i like i saw the fudge play there you know i everybody that was anybody played so i got my education what music i like you know they had folk music there you know richie havens played there i mm. mean everybody so i grew up knowing what i like now really quick i had met velvet turner velvet turner i did my first album with velvet and he knew jimmy hendrix and that's how i got to meet jimmy hendrix you know briefly you know right which was a whole nother thing you know are you aware of the Velvet Turner album? Um, I have heard of it. I have not heard the. I have not heard that album. Well, really quickly, the reason we got that deal was now I had met Jimmy through Velvet, and Velvet did authentically know Jimmy. So I, because of that, I was able to get backstage and go to jam sessions. Long story. So I, I came to California in '70, and when Jimmy died, which was unbelievable, who Jimmy of all you know Janice, whatever, but Jimmy was like this. You know, I hate to say godlike person because nobody mm -hmm. was writing songs like that, let alone play. He doesn't get enough credit as a songwriter, by the way. Yeah. 
you know, he was and an artist. He was all of those things. So Velvet called me and said, Jimmy passed away. And we were like fucking crying. He said, listen, I've been approached to uh, do a record deal. And I go, really? He goes, yeah. I go, well, where so so I flew back to New York. We rehearsed and uh, we did a demo and submitted it. And we got a record deal from Gulf and Western. And you know who signed this? Michael Lang. So I was at Woodstock in the audience the year before. A year later, I was signing a record deal with Michael Lang for his label, Sunshine Record. How weird is that? Wow. That is, with Velvet. That's awesome. So I'll double back on Woodstock in a minute. But because of that and, and meeting Michael Lang and being at Woodstock, that was a great story and how I got the record deal and how I came to California. So I'll, I'll leave that there. So <laughs> I used to go upstate New York every pretty much most of the summers. I knew the area. So when I heard about Woodstock, you know, I figured, okay, if I get upstate New York and I went with a friend of mine from uh, Brooklyn, we went there, we'll hang out first. I knew some girls, we went to see them first. And then we figured, we figured out how to get to Woodstock. So uh, we went there the day two days before. And as I was leaving and we figured, we got to figure out how to get there. There was a, I had a good fortune of finding, now you'll understand why. I found this guitar case in this girl's closet. And I asked her what's in the guitar case. And she said, it's an empty case. She said, if you want it, just take it. I have no need for it. It was an acoustic case, right? Okay. And I just said, I just said, okay, I'll take it. What do I know, right? Okay. I didn't take my instant. I just took it. You know? Right. So I was with my friend. We go, what are we, how are we going to get to wood? You know, what are we going to do to get to Woodstock? He says, well, why don't we just hitchhike? You know, like we always did, you know, you know, back then everybody hitchhiked. Right. You didn't could. Matter. Even though I had long hair and some people would go by and want to shoot me, but uh, but but I knew what it was like to be chased. By the way, <laughs> back in that time period, okay? okay, it wasn't a piece of cake. And when the Vietnam War going on, there's a lot going on, you know, and, and demonstrations. Anyway, we walked down to the road, and I said to my friend, you know, who's playing Woodstock? He goes, I don't know. So we heard about Hendrix, we heard of the Who, and we heard of Sly. So we're looking at a, at a at a telephone pole, and they had you know posters up. And I'm looking, I said, do you ever hear of this band? He goes, yeah. You ever hear of this band? Yeah. Country Joe, yeah. Do you ever hear of Santana? He goes, no. I go, okay. So listen, we're going to hitchhike and we're going to tell the people I had the guitar case. I'm going to go, I'm going to tell the guy I'm the guitar player in Santana. Okay. <laughs> so we start hitchhiking and somebody comes by and goes, I said, listen, man, we, can we get us to the Woodstock area? I said, I play in this group and we got to get there. And the guy goes, well, it's out of my way, but if you're playing, yeah. Okay. So that was my hustle. You got it? Yes, I got it. And and to this day, I wonder if this guy told everybody he drove Carlos Santana and Woodstock. <laughs> I had very long curly hair, by the way. Yeah. At of, the time. Of course he told everybody he had Carlos Santana to struck. Of course. Anyway, so that's how I got there. I mean, I mean basically, we, we, were, we got near the town. Now, my idea was I couldn't, we didn't have any money. I said, let's sign up because Woodstock hadn't opened and they still were hiring people to build stages and to build things, you know? Yep. So I signed up, I signed and my, and my friend disappeared. I don't know what happened. Yet. So I signed up so I can work there. I haven't some nails, you know, I, I did it, you know, half, whatever. I, so I knew that I'd get a pass to be in Woodstock. And as a result of that, the next day, of course, everybody broke the gates down and I didn't need it, but I had a pass, okay? And that pass saved my life because I, I didn't know where I was going to stay. I didn't have any money. You know, I was, I was winging it like we all did back then. So because I had a pass, I met somebody that did security. And I said, do me a favor. Can I work security? You know, can you get me a pass? So working security, that means I had a trailer I could sleep in and also have sandwiches. <laughs> because everybody that worked there had basic, okay, number yep, one. Right. And when it rained like hell, let me tell you, I thank God of that. It was a mud bowl the first day I was there. But anyway, didn't have any change of clothes or anything. Just whatever. You know how it is. You just wing it. <laughs> so I, I worked there. Next day I was there for the, you know, it was every band I loved played. Next day I was there again because I moved down the hill with my security pass. I was able to get another security pass. So by the time my favorite bands played, like Jimi Hendrix, Creedence and all that, and Sly, Sly was my favorite band. 
Mm. I, I mean, my, my bass playing, I love, I love Sly's music and as well as Crosby, Stills and Nash and Richie Haven. Sure. Sure. They had everybody I loved. I mean, all the blues bands were there. I loved 10 years after I had seen them and the who were one of my favorite bands. And John M. Wetzel was one of the people I looked up to because my bass playing. And uh, I love the who because it was so unpredictable. Right. And Keith Moon, forget forget it. And Townsend, <laughs> watching him watching him kick Abby Hoffman off the stage was the greatest thrill of my life. Because <laughs> he really did. Yeah, no, I nobody nobody goes up on stage when Townsend's playing. <laughs> and by the way, he kicked the fire commissioner off the stage of Fillmore when there was a fire there, and that's when they were all arrested afterwards. By the way, <laughs> so. <clears throat> so anyway, just really quickly. So I saw the great fans and there was Jimmy was a no show because the show went so late. So I figured, what the hell am I going to, you know, Jimmy may not show. So I went to sleep, woke up next morning. Everybody was leaving by then, but I heard started to hear something sound like Jimmy. And I, and I, what the hell's going on? I, and it was Jimmy playing. I ran down the hill. I caught most of this set. I saw him do the Star Spangled Banner, which at the time was a joke, right. by the way. Yeah. Because he would always throw, when he soloed a lot of times, he would throw in songs like melodies from like commercials or from movies or, you know what I mean? He was, and by the way, every time I saw Jimmy, he would play differently. Yeah. Because he, he'd always improv, you know? And isn't it, and and isn't, would, isn't it funny but, though, that, that the, the Star Spangled Banner what, was what he was known for. And, and for him, it was just a throwaway. Pretty remarkable. I'm sorry. It's it's interesting that you know, that, that that it was just a throwaway for him, and that was something that he became known for. Was was that one? It's unbelievable. Now I didn't know they were making a movie. Number one, I mean nobody did, and I'm there, and literally there were maybe, you know, a thousand people out of two hundred thousand because everybody left. Everybody didn't know Jimmy. You know, everybody had to go back to real life. You right. Know? And I had no idea, but I'm watching it, and it was like pulling something out. What is he doing? And the more I listened, only Jimmy could make it orchestral. With yeah. feedback, I mean, it was masterful. I, I, he could have just did it on the spot. Yeah. And, and it, then he played the rest of the set, you know? And it was amazing. So anyway, after that, I, I'm going, what am I going to do? I mean, how am I going to get home? So I went out, started hitchhiking. A Volkswagen bus with hippies pulled up. And I said, where are you going? I said, I'm going to Brooklyn. He said, we're going to Queens. Jump in. Smoke cash. <laughs> in the bus <laughs> took a train home to Brooklyn. I walked in the door. My mom goes, where you been? I go, you won't believe it. <laughs> so <laughs> now that's the end of the story, except for one thing. Four weeks later, I got a check for 40 bucks for security because, because I signed. No, the one day I did construction, I signed up. So I got eight hours of work. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. And what I, no, I didn't say, I gave it to my mom because I said, listen, I'm sorry, I, I took money out of your bag to get my base about two months ago. It wasn't my brother. <laughs> it was me. And I'm paying you back here. You know, like we have those relationships where you go, I'll pay back. She goes, yeah, sure. So anyway, that's, I gave, I made do with my thing. So I got paid to be a Woodstock. How's good, that? Good for you. Good for you. And I was fed, and I had some place to go to the bathroom. And you were the, so uh, that's, and you became the guitar player for Santana all in a single weekend. And I will never live that down. <laughs> but, but you know how we, you know how we were with kids. Yeah. It wasn't a master plan. It was just like, well, how are we going to get there? Well, let's hitchhike, and we'll say, we'll say we're in that band. <laughs> it, it turned out to be a funny story. I had no idea Santana was going to be who they became. Anyway. Yeah. I mean, what a great show for them, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I didn't even think for a minute that anybody's going to think of anything I said to get there. <laughs> so that's my story. Well, that's awesome. So, uh, I'm, th thanks for letting me share with you. Oh, absolutely. So you can imagine, so you can imagine a year later, literally a year later, I'm signing a record deal with Michael Lang. It, then I was surrealistic. Absolutely. So I'm, as much as the knack was surrealistic, being in a hit band, it was that foreign to me. Yeah. And so there were no, so I'm grateful that again, we're talking and I have a story to tell, but the music business is wonderful. And I'm so glad I got, you know, I was going to be a baseball player and I gave up a, schol a scholarship to play baseball because it was born after seeing <laughs> the Beatles and after seeing all these groups and then Sergeant Pepper came out. That's when I quit playing baseball. <laughs> 
<laughs> Just so you know, okay. Well, that I I knew about the baseball, but I didn't I didn't realize that it was the uh, Sergeant Pepper that got you to quit. I had a, well, I'm I, I'm at a game. No, seriously, I swear to God, I'm at a game, a high school game. It came out, and I'm just kidding. Forget it. I mean, that <laughs> album was so otherworldly. It yeah. wasn't that Revolver was, and Revolver blew my mind completely. When that came out, it was like the world was like that album changed the world. Hey Prescott, it's a uh, it's it's a real pleasure to talk to you. Like I said, I've been a fan for a, for a long, long time. Thank you so much. And best of luck with the uh, the uh, the new Knack record. It, it sounds fantastic. Yeah, and it is a good album. And and I and I implore your listeners to give it a listen, and you know check out some of the YouTube stuff. The Carnegie Hall <clears throat> concert we did is on YouTube. They have a, all of it. Unfortunately, it didn't come out yet officially, but you'll see what we sounded like back then. Yeah. And, uh, it was pretty cool, That's and I'm great. grateful. We And there's a lot of other YouTube clips, too. That's Thank awesome. you. Nice to meet you, Prescott. Thank you so much. Thank you. The new album by The Knack is available on Record Store Day, April 24th. Thanks for listening. I hope you like the show. Feel free to share it, subscribe to it, review it, tell all your friends about it. You can email me at vax at rock102.com. I'd love to know what you think. Thanks again to Canna Provisions for their support. You can support them by going to cannaprovisions.com. Thanks again. We'll see you next time on Baxi's Musical Podcast.